0: We've been teaching through the book of Romans expositionally, so it's taking the chapters and the verses and looking at them, and then we've been periodically stopping to have what we've called a panel discussion to try to flesh out the things that are being dealt with in the context of the teaching. The purpose for that is to take what we're teaching and bring it off the page and into the real world, where we are. How, How does this apply? And so, in these Teachings that we've been doing in these panel discussions, the title has been uh, Authority on our first one, Identity on the second one. And now this morning, uh, it is around justice. But as I sat in a room with four other people, uh, this content that has come together, we got together twice, which I've done with all of these panel discussions and gotten input to do this, it was decided it was probably better to lay the framework for a panel discussion, which we already had a tentative justice panel discussion number two coming later in the spring, uh, get somewhere is somewhere in the vicinity of Romans 12, 13, 14, which is a good place to have it. So what I'm going to be doing this morning is using the first probably two-thirds of our time to... Um, lay the framework of a biblical worldview in contrast to a world, world, a world worldview with regards to justice. And then I am going to invite uh, Tommy Robb up and she's going to spend the last third talking to us of what we would typically do in a panel, but only trying to take what I have talked about and put it into the real world around one singular topic, uh, and I'll tell you what that topic is before she comes. So that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, you're going to want to hold on to your socks. Uh, justice is a, this is, this is a, by nature there are hard things that are going to be said. Um, but they need to be said. And so in that framework, let me start this way. You just heard an Advent reading out of Micah 5 proclaiming the one that was to come that brings peace. Well, this is Micah 6, and this is a question that is asked. What does the Lord require? This is the answer. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly before your God? Do you know what justice does? Brings peace. Isaiah in chapter 5 is talking to a group of people who are not doing well and are, have suffered for the way that they have not represented the Lord well. And he says this of them starting in verse 7 of chapter 5. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. It's his people in totality. Those two places represent the southern and the northern kingdom of the time. And he says this, the Lord amongst his people looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, he only found an outcry. Verse 13, therefore, my people will go into exile for their lack of knowledge. For their lack of understanding what is justice and what is righteousness and practicing it. And then he says this in verses 20 through 23, still in Isaiah 5 Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight who do this, acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Micah says, what is the Lord looking for? Justice. Isaiah is saying to his people, do you know what you've done for the Lord? Instead of bringing justice, you have brought the opposite of it. You have distorted it in every way. That's why you are experiencing what you are experiencing in this exile. Well, good news. We live in a culture where there's no confusion over justice whatsoever, right? Not at all. And the reality is most of us have a hard time of discerning what is just and what is unjust because oftentimes it is nuanced. And there's a reason for that. And I'm going to start in my explanation for that in pitting or contrasting two ideas, uh, which is a biblical justice and a worldly justice. This is how we've uh, tackled our other um, panel discussions with the compare and contrast. And that's how we're going to do it this morning. First of all, the kingdom of heaven The kingdom of heaven is, the biblical justice only happens in the kingdom of heaven. Our bullet points here is that the first thing you're going to look at is who is the ruler. His name is Jesus. And he is the only one of bringing justice and judgment. In other words, he is the definer of justice and judgment in this kingdom. It is defined by Jesus and therefore it is objective to everybody else. He defines it perfectly perfectly. I do not think that Jesus has a problem with understanding what is just and what is unjust. I think he's got it perfectly. He is the definer of it. The people within this kingdom are ambassadors or agents of the overall good. Meaning, those who operate under the perspective of the kingdom of heaven can only bring what is good as has been defined by Jesus. We literally lay down our right or the thought that we have an opinion about what is good. We simply pick it up, learn it, attain it from the definer of what is good, and then we become ambassadors and agents of it. Our action, therefore, is to display and demonstrate that justice, which is, by the way, for the flourishing of everyone. It does not matter who you are, where you came from, or what your position in life is. If we would all submit to the definer of justice and judgment by Jesus, it would be for all of our flourishing. The kingdom of man, on the other hand, is one where the rulers are corrupt leaders of, of men, it's people. And justice and judgment is defined by men and subjectively. Men are really good at being corrupt and corrupted. They are not good at objectively defining anything, especially if they stand to lose from it. So it's always subjective. We'll get more into that. It is self-serving. The people in this kingdom are self-serving. They're for the good for them at the detriment of anybody else. And their action... In order to be for the good of them, they must deny, distort, or destroy justice, which when you do that, you're ultimately destroying people, for their self-flourishing instead of the flourishing of all. That's the distinction. Those are the broad distinctions. Before we go into the details of how that plays out, I want to acknowledge this. There's commonalities of all people under both systems. And here's the commonalities. Everybody has some kind of moral law. They may not know they have a moral law. They may not be able to communicate that moral law, but they have a moral law. Even if somebody says, no, there's no such thing as right or wrong, you should ask them the question, is that right? In which case, they have exposed the reality that they have a moral law, but it is a moral law based on their thoughts. Secondly, we all experience hurt and injury. Actually, it usually is our hurt and injury that then, allows, that then causes us to retrospectively go back and decide what our moral law is. It's where I've experienced hurt and pain and trying to set things right. And now I make my moral law a, a way to set things right or to make sure that that hurt or injury doesn't happen to, didn't happen to me again. Therefore, everybody from every context, here's the deal. Something is wrong. Something must be done about the wrong. That's where we all stand. Now, here's the contrast. Kingdom of man has a premise. That premise is this. There will be no true and complete justice until God brings it about. Orthodox Christianity says, there is a kingdom coming that is not here yet in its fullness and its completeness. And when he comes, our Advent reading When he comes to make things right in its finality, it will be in his second advent, not in his first. By the way, nobody in the New Testament saw that coming. Nobody saw two advents coming. But there's another one. And that's what we believe. Things are not going to be set right. Perfectly right until he does it. And until he does it in his time. That is a premise that we must have. John 5 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority, the Son, Jesus, to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Matthew 13 and 25 play out the groups of people that will fit into those two categories and they will be put in those two categories by the objective definition of justice from the only one who has the authority to judge. His name is Jesus. Revelation 19 says there is one, there is the, this is the, the revelation of the last rider on the white horse and he is the one, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, Revelation 19 tells us. He will bring it about. Premise number two, man is not inherently good. And cannot fix the problem of injustice in the world. We have been teaching through the book of Romans. Romans 1 told us that what men do under their own power is take God and set him aside and put other things in his place and worship him. And when you begin to worship, when you begin to worship things that are not him, your life gets distorted and destroyed. That's Romans 1. Romans 3, Paul makes sure that you understand uh, the, act, the outcome of that. That is this, both the outcome and the cause of it is this in Romans 3, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And if that's the descriptor of men, how is that person going to set things right among other people? They cannot. We do not have the power to bring perfect justice to this temporal and broken world because we are broken people. Those are the premises of a biblical worldview. What is the action plan under that reality? Here it is. We are ambassadors and agents of this kingdom and we seek a lifestyle as redeemed people, i.e. to imitate Jesus, which is how we display and demonstrate justice and judgment as it is objectively defined by our ruler, who is Jesus. In 1 Peter 3, he, Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile, revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Second Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the earth and all of the works that are done in it are going to be exposed, he says in Second Peter 3. And so then he asks his readers this question. What sort of people ought we to be in light of that? And what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness as we wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God? As we look for the day in which he is going to set things right, what do we do in the meantime, Peter simply says. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ among some We are a fragrance from death to death. Among others, we are a fragrance from life to life. For we are not to be peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God to speak Christ. That's who we are, ambassadors and agents. What are our characteristics? Our characteristics are this. We are salt and light, compassion, grace, and truth. We are salt and light in Ephesians five, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Paul says. Look carefully how you should walk, not as wise but unwise, making the best use of your time, understanding. Again, what the will of the Lord is. In Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So that you may know how to be an agent of this objective definitions of our ruler Jesus and how life works and how we're supposed to uh, live that out. In Matthew 5, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. Let your salt be saltiness and let your light shine, he says. Our compassion. Our compassion. Um, Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, but be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. And Titus... Be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here's here's where our, our, our compassion comes from. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedience, led astray slaves to various passions and pressures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating others. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. See, we understand where we've been and therefore we get to treat everybody we know that, that is where we once were with a, in, with a demeanor of compassion. And then finally we come with grace and truth. This is the two words that John uses when he sees Jesus come on the scene and looks at him and points at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. You are seeing the one that has brought and is full of grace and truth. For those of us who seek to imitate Christ, it is in those two dynamics that we seek to live Therefore, our goal is to see people rescued from their darkness that we once lived. From the prince of the power of the air, which is going to simply blind them and make their foolish hearts even darker, i.e. Romans 1. That sound familiar? And from themselves and therefore all of the devastating consequences of their sin and finally from an eternal wrath. We want to see people, our goal is to see people rescued temporally from the devastating causes of sin in their life, eternally from the devastating separation from God eternally because of their sin. That is our goal. The people who live under the kingdom of heaven. This is why Christianity and biblical justice is about lives lived for and unto the glory of God and is for human flourishing, both temporally and eternally. If I could stop anywhere and just take this long meandering road, I would stop right here and talk about the reality that. The truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is, the truth of who Jesus is, is unto the benefit of everybody. It doesn't matter who they are, what's going on with them, what they struggle with, what they've done in their past. To acknowledge Christ as the only righteous one and put your faith in him is to be freed. It's the only way to have peace. It's the only way flourishing is possible. That is the kingdom of heaven. What about the kingdom of man? Premise one, true and complete justice can and should be attained in this life. Now, does that make sense? Yes, it does. Because to most of those in the world with a kingdom of man mindset, there's no other arena or area with which things are going to be made right. This is the only one we have. It has to be made right now. This is all. There is no hope in anything to come. So therefore, it makes sense. Now, premise two is really not premise two. It's a tweak on premise one. The traditional view, which I just gave you, is man is inherently good or at least capable of bringing about justice in the world for the good of the world. That is the traditional view. There's been a tweak on that traditional view, and that is... Men are not necessarily good, but only because the power structures that are in place and the cultural norms that are in place by those power structures have corrupted them. That's going to become more clear in a second. And all we have to do to get men back to good is remove the things that have corrupted them or kept them from being good. That's the premise behind the kingdom of man. So what is their action plan? Put the right people in the right place with the right definitions of what is and isn't justice and then give them the necessary power to execute it. That is the ideology of Marxism and critical theory. That right there. All you got to do, if men is the solution, it's not just men in general, it's the right men or women or whoever. Put them in the right spot, give them the right authority and tell them to do whatever they have to do to make things right. The power structures are to be blamed for the evil in the world. This mindset leads to an ideology that is an oppressor-oppressed ideology, and it pits groups of people against one another. The oppressor, no matter who they are, they are bad. The oppressed, no matter who they are, or for either, what they do, they are good. That is the baseline. The oppressor can do no good. They are deplorable. They are unredeemable. They must be opposed. They must be canceled. They must be removed from any place of privilege, power, or advantage. Because in the world's mindset, they're the problem. Is that clear? We got to get rid of of them if we're going to solve the problem. Now, the oppressed, those influenced by the oppressor, can do no bad. They are exempt from standards of justice established by the oppressor class. Well, because, of course, the oppressor class have established things to keep themselves in power. And therefore, the oppressed are justified and virtuous in anything they do and in any way they oppose or depose the oppressors in an attempt to correct the inequalities that have been placed on them by the oppressors. Oppressor, bad, no matter who you are. Oppressed, good, no matter who you are. And everyone must fit into one group or another, and you're forced to choose between two. And actually, you are forced to be placed in one of the two categories, depending on who you are, most of the time uh, based on who you are in ways that you can't help who you are. And I'm going to get there in a minute. We know the biblical worldview, I hope you know, you've heard it enough, that in a fallen world, we think of everybody as both a victim and an agent of oppression. The world's worldview says you, you are either beautiful or you're a broken. The biblical worldview says everybody is beautiful as an image bearer of the creator and broken as a consequence of sin. Both. In the world worldview, it's either either or world world worldview. Try saying that fast. That's not, I don't know what that's going to sound like on the recording. Um, Characteristics. What are the characteristics of this kingdom? The sword and the stone. Violence. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What Jesus is saying is that's the world's worldview. That's what they say. They say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to the other. What he's doing is giving another way forward than what everybody knows as the way forward. In John 8, he is asked by some scribes and Pharisees that have found a woman caught in adultery. And they said, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What's their answer? Stoning. Matthew 26, when Jesus is approached by a legion legion of soldiers, by Roman soldiers to come take him out of the garden, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off an ear of a soldier. Peter's mindset of how we settle this problem, the sword. And that's what he, he reacts because that's what's in him. That's what he knows. That's how he's lived Obviously, that's how we're going to do this. Jesus says, essentially, I'm not quoting, put the sword back. If the sword was the way we were going to do things, this thing would be over by now. Do you know the power I have? At the sound of my voice. To straighten out all of this. That's not what we're doing, Peter. And that's not how it's going to be done. Their goal. Obviously, the sword and the stone produces wrath, injury, and death. Their goal is to simply get victims in the seat of power in order to oppress the old oppressors, and everything will be put right. Combined with identity, justice is allowing self-proclaimed identities to flourish. This leads us to some version of humanism or what is more recently known as critical theory, which is for the glory of man, certain men. It is temporal, it is short-lived, it is short-sighted, flourishing. It is flourishing for one group that will always be at the expense of another. There has to be two groups. There has to be somebody to benefit and somebody to blame. That's how it works. Any righteousness for one will be at the expense of somebody else, and that causes all kinds of problems. And here are the problems justice is subjective, it's never absolute. It can, it can, it's always a moving target. It's determined by the people in power, whether those people be self-appointed, enlightened cultural elites or simply those who are traditionally oppressed or victimized or the self-appointed, enlightened cultural elites that have now propped up the traditionally oppressed and victimized only to let themselves off the hook for the systems that they have designed. The idea is that progressivism is always good because it's always new and new is always better. And experience is the litmus test. Not that experience can't reflect what is true and teach us truth about things, but it simply cannot be used as the sole test or input for what is true, certainly what is just, the very endeavor disqualifies anybody else's experience. If, even in the same arena, their experience is different than yours, then their experience has to be invalid or at least not as true as yours, if experience is the litmus test. And in this particular mindset, you have to have experience to truly understand the world's evil. In other words, you must have been, you must have been uh, done evil By the world to know what that evil is and to have any credibility to right the wrong of that evil. Therefore, the people who should be in power are always the most oppressed and um, and marginalized. Until, of course, they get in power and become the oppressors and have to be removed for their oppression. Anybody know about the French Revolution? It's just an unsustainable system. It doesn't work. It runs its course. An example was given to me by my guest this morning. And this is what she wrote. White people are inherently oppressors and they have much to atone for. But minorities are inherently oppressed and they have nothing to atone for. It creates two sets of people born into this world. The oppressed can do no wrong, or even worse, their wrongs are to be completely and utterly excused. The oppressor, they have a guilt that cannot be redeemed. For oppressors, listen to this line, good deeds are filthy rags. For the oppressed, filthy rags are good deeds. Notice I said that it creates two sets of people born into this world. That means you will get put in one of the two categories depending on who you are as a group of people based on something you had nothing to do with. Your DNA. This is why the original definition of marriage and gender are old institutions by oppressive power structures meant to oppress people. This is why murder is wrong, unless, of course, it's not. And when it's not is when it's done by the oppressed to the oppressor. In our latest examples, I'm skimming for how young... In our latest examples of what's going on in the Middle East, you have gang rape, beheading and mutilation and then videos of documentation of those atrocities for the purpose of basking in their success of a just cause and for using those videos to replay in the sight of their victims over and over and over again just to remind them what true justice is. And these perpetrators are being supported and cheered. By the way, most of the atrocities done, the vast majority of the atrocities are against women, creating a very interesting scenario for women who are for women's rights. And for defending the cause of the woman, unless, of course, they are of a particular race. Because if you are a woman defending the rights of women's causes, in the abuse that they have experienced and you're for the Palestinian or the Hamas uh, actions on October the 7th and following, then you are in a quandary. There's nowhere for you to go. So you got to choose one side or the other, but you can't live in the middle. The same thing's being done in pitting women against the LGBTQ community. You can't be for both of them in one particular area. What am I talking about? Men and women's sports. So you got to choose. You have to choose a side. Because you can't be for the flourishing of both. It's a corner you can't get out of. It's subjective defining of what is right and wrong and just and unjust. Tommy Robb, would you join me, please? This is Tommy Robb, everyone. Tommy Robb is known by most of you who come here. Uh, She's been coming here for years. Tommy and I have known each other for about 12 years now, going on 13 Mm -hmm. years. How fortunate for you. (laughs) It's been the joy of my life. I know. Tommy is, a, uh, Tommy is a law school graduate who says that she went to law school as an effort to use her gifts to pursue restoration among the forgotten. She graduated, she was in UT Law, uh, College of Law from 18 to 21, and graduated with a focus on ag- advocacy. And she has been doing advocacy work prior to even going to law school, which is one of the reasons why you went to law school. It saw the opportunity to do that in a, uh, uh, a more tangible way with her gifts. She has worked with Her Plan, which is an organization that comes around mothers who have decided to keep their children and connects them with resources that already exist. She helps them know where those resources are and how to find those resources to get what they need to help bring this baby into the world and raise it. She is good friends with Stacey Dunn, who is the president of Tennessee Right to Life and has been working with them for years. Now she is, the, she is a media spokesperson for Tennessee Right to Life and speaks as a representative on a legal panel regarding the overturn of Roe versus Wade and what that means for Tennessee. She is presently working to create new informational materials before the new legislative session Starts. She has been involved with Deeper Still, which is a ministry helping women get over the recovery of experiencing abortions. And she has also, along with a friend, created an organization called Healing the Wounds of the Womb, which seeks to end the silence around abortion. Are you listening? It seeks to end the silence around abortion within Churches that causes people to avoid transparent conversation and forces mothers to mourn in silence. And this is a part of her heart. That's why this morning as we are going to wrap up, what we are talking about is the reality of how these things play out in the arena of abortion. Next month, Tommy, is January, Sanctity of Life Month. Uh, And we're a little early. (laughs) But we're in light of our panel number two, we're going to talk about this topic and more, fleshing out this issue of biblical worldview and world worldview justice. But this morning, what I want you to hear is from Tommy and how she, in her advocacy, both in law and in speech, uh, uses her gift to talk about these things. So, Tommy, have at it. <laughs>
1: Um, So the systems that Michael has just walked us through are hierarchical systems, meaning that they are ways that we rank groups of people and decide the rules for their interaction. And each of those systems tells us how to view the intentional pursuit of the deaths of children in the womb, also known as abortion. The idea that truth can, sorry, I'm going to start with the experiential hierarchy narrative around abortion, which is this idea that truth cannot be known or can only be known by people who have had the right experiences and thus only people in the experiential know can speak truth. Abortion is something where not only has our culture decided that each man should do what is right in his own eyes, but the church has often done the same, remaining silent on the issue, failing to give a biblical perspective. Accepting the experiential hierarchy in regard to abortion is particularly tragic because this is the experience for which people who have been through it often are not able to talk about it at all. There's a wall of silence around this, and these families are denied even the dignity of grief. The humanist hierarchy narrative, nothing is more pro-choice than humanism you are free to make any choice you like about anything you like and it is the job of everyone around you to support you in that choice because this life is all that matters humanism has no room for an eternal perspective and the oppression hierarchy it's again tragic particularly in the realm of abortion because In order to talk about abortion as an oppressor versus oppressed scenario, you have to accept opposing parties where there are none. A mother against her baby. They are not in contention, but we let the killing of the unborn be couched in these terms without challenging it. And you might say then, well, this is oppression, but the oppressor is the person who is trying to keep the woman from her abortion. But then in this view, why does she need one? Because she is an opposing party from the baby. And the oppressor is joining the baby and oppressing her. So you can't get around it. You have to.
0: To say, so I want to say what you said again. I stopped during the first service too. She knew this was coming. I thought I got it. Yeah. You must accept the idea of two opposing parties where there are none. You must pit the baby against its mother and the mother against her baby.
1: Scripture has a lot to say about the care of children, about the protection of children, that they are a gift from God and that we are to treasure them. Uh, We cannot possibly run through all the Bible says about the unborn, but very quickly, I want to go through the fact that God creates personally and individually each human life. Job 10, 8 and 11, you formed me with your hands, you made me. You guided my conception and formed me in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh and you knit my bones and sinews together. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Ecclesiastes 11.5, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind and the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Luke 1.39-44, a passage that you never hear this time of year, says, a few days later, Mary hurried into the hill country of Judea to where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Remember back in verses 11 through 15 the angel told Zechariah that John the Baptist would be filled with the holy spirit while still in the womb. Elizabeth is 6 months pregnant with John. She has felt this maybe this baby move before. This is something different. This is something extraordinary. Elizabeth has also had no opportunity to know that Mary is pregnant, she's not very far along, and she's only just walked in the door. But John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, is already in the womb, he's already in the room, the man that God made is there. A preborn child was the first person to acknowledge Jesus the Messiah. These are the people God has made that we are killing. So what then should our response be? Psalm 82, three and four says, you are here to defend the defenseless. Your job is to stand up for the powerless and prosecute all those who exploit them. Silence is the wrong response. Proverbs 24 and 11, rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to die. Save them as they stagger to their death. Do not excuse yourself by saying, look, we did not know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. Silence is the wrong response. And lastly, Proverbs 31 and 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Silence is the wrong response. How then, when we have scripture telling us that God treasures children and uniquely creates us, do we feel like there's so much nuance, particularly around the issue of abortion. I think it comes primarily from two things. Number one, health of the mother. This is a place where the accusation against pro-lifers is, you do not care about women, you do not care if they die. That's why you don't want exceptions. The problem is we have contrary worldviews, we don't use language the same, and we do not take the time to hear one another. An abortion is a procedure whose intent and purpose is the death of an unborn child. A medical procedure which a mother's unborn child cannot survive is something else. So when they say, we don't need exceptions, they mean because this isn't what we're talking about and why would we conflate these two things? Only a procedure whose intended and purpose is to kill the child is an abortion, nothing else is. Hmm. Two, rape and incest, which are the teeth of this particular tiger. The issue is presented as the compassionate versus the heartless, versus the oppressor. And this is how the door was open to abortion in the first place. The focus of the abortion lobby has always been on rape and incest. Because once you make exceptions for the hard cases, the unborn child's right to life is no longer absolute, mm. and other restrictions lose their moral imperative. So it was exactly that logic that was used in Doe v. Bolton, which is the often forgotten companion case to, Ro- case to Roe v. Wade. The Georgia Supreme Court struck down a law that allowed abortion only in the case of rape. So they had built their law around the exception, saying this subset of women can have an abortion. And the court said, well, either a child has a right to life, or she doesn't. And if she doesn't, then anyone can have an abortion anytime they want to. The moral imperative is gone. They found that it was unjustifiable to arbitrarily forbid abortions for other circumstances. So the question as it's posed is, should a woman who is carrying a child conceived in rape be forced to carry that child? Did you know that most women who become pregnant by sexual assault do not seek an abortion? That upon being surveyed, none of the women who carried their child to term regretted it? None of the victims of incest had any say in their abortion? None of the children born to these women wished that they had been aborted. You might think that would go without saying, but the argument is made every day that no one wants to live in this world knowing that is how they were conceived. 98% of rape victims regretted their abortion. 93% do not recommend it to other victims. 4% said they were uncertain. 100% of incest victims regretted their abortion. 79% do not recommend it. 14% were uncertain. Did you also know that abortion is contraindicated for women whose conception was violent due to the trauma? The effects after abortion are guilt, depression, feelings of being dirty, resentment of men, and lowered self-esteem. The effects after rape are guilt, depression, feelings of being dirty, resentment of men, and lowered self-esteem it's contraindicated because it makes them worse. 84% of women pregnant by sexual assault reported a high or substantial amount of pressure to abort. And those higher rates of pressure lead to higher rates of mental health treatments, alcohol use, drug addiction, PTSD symptoms, premature death, suicide attempts, sleep disorders, and postpartum depression. These victims become protective of others, and especially of their unborn child. 70% said they believe abortion just furthers the violence. Patricia said the effects of the abortion are much more far-reaching than the effects of the rape in my life. Helene said abortion does not help or solve a problem. It only compounds and creates another trauma for the already grieving victim by taking away the one thing that can bring joy. Edith, who was a 12-year-old pregnant victim of incest, said it only saved their reputation, solved their problems. My daughter, how I miss her so. I miss her regardless of the reason for her conception. (laughs) Vanessa said the aftermath of my abortion continued long after the memory of the rape had faded. So the question, or when asked uh, what made it most difficult to continue their pregnancy, these women said it was the social pressure, the opinions, attitudes, and beliefs of others. It is our need to look away that is the reason these women get an abortion in the first place, and then they regret it for the rest of their life. So the question should not be, should this woman have to carry her attacker's child? The question should be, should a woman and her child who was conceived by rape be abandoned to care for themselves without the love and support of family, friends, and society? I want you to understand this. Abortion exceptions for incest are an invaluable contribution to the abuse of young girls. Even more than other rape victims, they see their pregnancy as a sign of hope, and they do not want an abortion the people around them do. These mothers see their child as their hope to expose and escape their situation and to develop a loving, familial relationship unlike what they are currently experiencing. The sense of protection engages in these mothers. They almost exclusively want their babies. Incest abortions conceal a crime, abet a better perpetrator, and hand the victim back to her abuser, they depend on you to look away. They depend on you to not look closely. Lastly, the black population in America is not only shrinking, it is on the verge of disappearance. For a people group to continue to exist, you need a replacement rate of 2.1. We're at 1.7. And the rate at which it is falling, will put it at 1.3 by the year 2050. That is not only unsustainable, it is irreversible. 23 million black babies have been aborted in a country where there are only 41 million. That is over half of the current population or the numbers that are missing. Abortion is the leading cause of death in the black community. It is more than suicide, drug-related deaths, HIV, firearm, homicide, accidents, cancer, heart disease combined come to 207,000 deaths a year, abortion is 360,000. Black women have been made into the mascots of the abortion lobby, that if you take their abortions away, you are an oppressor, you are marginalizing them. What is more marginalized than decimation? What is more unjust? They depend on you to not look any closer, to live in the kingdom of man, to seek worldly justice, the truth about which you cannot know, Rather than to live in the kingdom of God, who is himself truth and who crafts uniquely and individually each human life.
0: She did that exactly like I taught her to do. (laughs) Is that not a gift? Here's what we're doing. We're talking about what is true. And sometimes that's couched as insensitive. But the reality of everything you just said is, if we don't understand the way that the kingdom of God is distinct from the kingdom of man and is meant to infiltrate the kingdom of man to bring good, true, and beautiful, we have to, as a church, understand the reality of that, not just understand it, be convicted by it before we will ever engage people who need us to engage them with the appropriate empathy and compassion and potential redemption that we offer them. Yes. We are not against people in these places of uh, incest or, or rape or anything. We're for them because the kingdom of God is the only thing that brings flourishing. We've got to know the answers. We've got to know how to say. That is not true, this is true, and then bring truth to bear. And those who need truth more than anybody needs it. And that is, uh, I, maybe I took it out of your mouth, but what do you want for us? You know, you're, you're, you said in, in your writing here, healing the wounds of the womb, it's seeking, to, it's seeking to speak to us so that we as a people are not silent. What do, we, what do you want for us in all of this, Tommy?
1: For these conversations, to be normalized within the church, we can have transparency around it. God's grace covers this, the welcome of Jesus Christ creates safety around this, and the people who are struggling with it in silence have nowhere to go. That's what I wanna see change. A lot of the post-abortive women I sit with, one, every single one of them says to me, I felt like I had no choice, and I felt like I lost my voice, I hear that every time, but it is often decades down the road that they are talking about this, and they have sat with it every day all alone. That is what I want to see ceased in the church.
0: May God give us the grace to be such people. The baby born in that manger is born against the backdrop of the one, only, true, perfectly just God Who must intervene in unrighteousness and injustice if he's going to be good. And he is the provision that you and I might live in an unjust world ruled ultimately by a just God and him do what he has to do, which is judge us as unjust unless there's the baby. And then you and I get to be under the justice of God, yet live instead of die, because one has lived in our place. Yeah, this is an Advent sermon, because everything is an Advent sermon. Amen? Grace and peace to you.